This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Today's episode of Dissect is brought to you by Sonos. Recently, Sonos added a brand new product to their home sound system family. It's called Beam, a smart compact soundbar for your TV. Great for mid-sized rooms and TVs, the Beam is Amazon Alexa enabled for easy voice control and delivers crystal clear, richly detailed sound for movies, shows, and video games, plus music, podcasts, and more. It's got pretty cool built-in settings like speech enhancement that adds clarity to dialogue, and night sound mode that allows you to enjoy late night TV without waking the whole house. And what's more, Sonos Beam is only $3.99. For bolder sound and larger rooms, Sonos also has Playbar and Playbase. Pre-order Sonos Beam now at Sonos.com and start your home sound system today. Welcome to Dissect, long-form musical analysis broken into short, digestible episodes. I'm your host, Cole Kushner. As you remember from the first episode this season, Frank Ocean began his music career as a songwriter in Los Angeles, going then by his given name, Lonnie Bro. You'll also remember Frank was signed to Def Jam as a solo artist after meeting a man named Tricky Stewart in 2009. Well, I recently had the pleasure to visit Tricky Stewart in his studio in Atlanta, Georgia. I wanted to talk to him about those early days with Frank and what was going on behind the scenes that led to the release of his first project, Nostalgia Ultra. But beyond that, I also wanted to talk to Tricky about his legendary career in the music industry. If you don't happen to recognize Tricky Stewart by name, you without a doubt know his work very well. He's a songwriter and producer that worked with everyone from Mariah Carey, Rihanna, Beyonce, Celine Dion, Justin Bieber, Seriously, the list goes on and on and on. You know that little song, Single Ladies by Beyonce? Or how about Umbrella by Rihanna? That's tricky. He's a living legend that's been working as a producer since he was a teenager, and he's got the plaques to prove it. The walls of his Atlanta studio are covered with awards, a living history of some of the best pop music over the last 20 years. It was really a pleasure talking with Tricky. We cover how he came up in the industry, influential figures in his life, how he wrote like four hit songs in 48 hours, his relationship with Frank Ocean, his thoughts on Frank's new music, 
and what he's been up to these days. He's very candid and honest, and he had some great stories to tell. Okay, so without further ado, here's my conversation with the great Tricky Stewart, recorded in its beautiful Red Zone studio in Atlanta, Georgia. All right, well, uh, welcome to Dissect. Actually, it's kind of welcome to your studio, but... Uh, welcome for, to Red Zone. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for, uh, for taking the time to talk to me. Super Absolutely. excited, man. Absolutely. Thank yeah, you for yeah. having me. Cool. Uh, let's jump right in. So I wanted to start just kind of where you were born. So you're born in Markham, Illinois. Is that yeah. correct? And Markham, which Mar- is a suburb of Chicago. Uh, okay. You know, most people that are from Markham would say, or born in Markham would say that they were... They live in Chicago. Oh, got it. But okay. I was born there and grew up in Dalton, Illinois. Got it. Okay. And you come, you come from a musical family, right? Yeah, pretty musical. I yeah. guess you could say that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> gotta, yeah. I mean, everywhere I looked in my family was music from my mother and my father to my cousins to my brothers to every everything around me just all was always music. So you you wrote songs that when you're starting when you're twelve. I'm wondering how that happens. Is it just because you're surrounded by music your whole life is just kind of natural um i i think when when i started writing at 12 it was more so that because that's what my cousin wanted to do and we just kind of did everything together okay. yeah so i think he was probably more interested in i than in it than i was but because uh, i was more on the athlete side and you know oh, okay. really like playing sports and outdoor stuff motorcycles and all that kind of stuff and music was good but it was just something that you know it wasn't like Something I used to spend time thinking about other than just loving it. Oh, interesting. So when did you start taking it seriously? Uh, about two weeks ago. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I don't know. I th- I think I started taking it serious when um, when it, opportunities started to come from it. And my older brothers uh, really went and started making their way in music and me at the time i was about 15 years old watching what they were doing they kind of moved out of the house kind of were you know spreading their wings as uh as young people do and um you know they went up you know started going downtown and you know started a company and all that kind of stuff so you know for me at that point it was just kind of like you know they were you know my brothers were my mentors they're my you know like father figures and brothers and everything mm-hmm. so it was kind of like what they what they always did always looked fun as well so i had that i'd been playing in church been playing sports and doing it all but at the end of the day like music was just something that came very very natural to me uh just because it was given to me at such a young age yeah yeah so um when did Luel Silas enter into your life? It seems like m- when you met him, that's kind of when things... Well, Lul Silas is um, my favorite A&R of all time, my favorite executive, music executive of all time. I actually started working with him because my oldest brother, Laney, is a producer as well. And Laney is one of my mentors as a producer and really got the thing started for us in the record business. And uh, through that, uh, his relationship of breaking into the business... Uh, in his own way through getting a publishing deal in a traditional way uh, he had started getting you know really big executives to to pay attention to him and Lul was one of those executives that and I believe he was the first um, executive to ever fly to Chicago to really uh, take Aaron Hall who was scorching hot at the time and put him in the studio with my brother Um, Mm. 
And that was a big deal because Teddy Riley was obviously king at that time. They had just split. And the respect that he had for my brother Laney kind of led him to go, well, this is Teddy and he's king. And we think that you're the guy that can make the Aaron Hall album. And that was kind of a really big deal for us at that time. Okay. So how do you go from Chicago? That, so that was happening in Chicago, right? Yeah. So then how do you get to, to Atlanta, which you currently you know, kind of set up your roots here and, and really started to take off? Well, um, well what, ended, what ended up happening was I went out to, we went out to Los Angeles. We moved. I was 17 years old at the time. Um, had left school, had started working downtown with my brothers. Um, and my brother was getting really busy. So we went out to LA, we moved. And from there, we spent about um, two, two and a half, three years out in LA, mm. uh, working on just different projects. You know, my career is semi taking off, but I'm getting opportunity, but not really delivering on anything in a massive way. You know, but at the same time, I am a working producer. So, and you're how old at this time? Seventeen, uh, seventeen, and eighteen. Oh, crazy, so, yeah. you know, I'm I'm doing Brandy's first demos. I'm doing Immature's first album, uh, things like that. You yeah. know what I mean? So, things are things are going well, um, well enough to take care of myself. So that we're good. You know, but with that being said, um, you know what Lil Silas was doing that really led me to the love of L.A. and Babyface and L.A. and Babyface and also Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. And at that time, they were starting LaFace Records in Atlanta. Mm. And that's kind of how we ended up in Atlanta. Because okay. through uh, this girl named Ty- Tyvee Terman, man, what was I doing? I was doing her album. She was in a group called Black Girl. Mm-hmm. And Black Girl was signed to Joel Katz's company here that he had started in Atlanta. And her and Tony Braxton were roommates. And... She was singing demos for L.A. and Face. I was making records for her and her on her solo project in L.A. Mm-hmm. or her group project. And she came back telling L.A., you know, about this producer that she had met um, that she was working with. And she was really super passionate, thought we were super dope at that time. It was Tricky and Sep, which is also my cousin. And um, we, we came down here. L.A. heard us, uh, brought us down here immediately on her recommendation and um we got in there and the you know the relationship started hot and heavy and it it, it led to a, a great uh relationship that we still have with LA and Babyface to this day but it all really started because Tyvee was so passionate about um playing our music for LA mm-hmm. and LA heard it and identified with it you know and this is before we could even record our songs. We had to sing them our songs live. You know what I mean? So there was no demo. There was no (laughs) records. It was like I sat in a truck, you know, from my first meeting with L.A. in front of the the Four Seasons. And me and my cousin had to sing him the song. And that song ended up giving us the life that we have here in Atlanta, which is the studio that you um, are in right now. Was built that year from that song. Crazy. What song was it? It was a flop. It was called. <laughs> it was a. It was a. I can't remember. Some little something. Okay. It was a little something. A little something. It would fit now. Yeah. Yeah, but something. no, you know, at that time they were building the company, and we were just kind of like, "Yo, we'll move," but what are we moving to? Yeah. You know, and my brother Mark, who's my manager, was just like. 
we got to get something. Yeah. Something that we can't get from being in L.A. Yeah. You know, so what you when you walk into this building, this 15,000 square foot building, that that was the thing that we couldn't get in L.A. Oh, so this has been day one right here. Day one. Oh, crazy. Yeah. That's so cool. all the records yeah. have touched this place. Yeah. Insane. That's really cool. Yeah. So it seems like your experience coming up was pretty organic. Um, one thing kind of leading to another, meeting certain people that then introduce you to other people. Was there, was there ever a time where you kind of question what you're doing? Like when you, any like low points when you're like, I don't know if this is, you know, what I should no, be doing? No, no. I, I, no, I never questioned myself because it was easier to be a working producer back then if you were good. Mm. I mean, it's a little tougher in today's age today because you can be really really good and not really be given opportunity but back then it was so hard to get in the studio first and foremost because you had to know somebody and if you had to know somebody you were vetted pretty good about your about your talent level yeah so it wasn't as hard to get heard yeah but um so it wasn't it wasn't a situation where I ever had to have doubt because I was constantly being validated Mm. by being able to be a working producer early on in my career, which I know is really challenging to have that attitude right now in 2018. Yeah, it's kind of ironic that it's like people are so connected more than ever, but you're saying that it was easier back then. Is that just like a saturation thing? There's just so many people that can make music. Everyone, everyone can do music. Yeah, yeah Everyone yeah. can do music, you know? So you're competing against everyone. It's yeah. not you're not competing against 25 camps that have dedicated their life to the craft of making music. Yeah. And when we came in, that's how it was. It was 25 camps and we fought it out, you know, and you, you could win some and you could lose some, but now there's billions of camps, you know, literally everyone's making music. You could start your own camp, you know, I guess before kind of the hits started coming, was there any kind of break that you felt like was like pretty pivotal or was it this, what we're, what we're in now? Was it coming to Atlanta, starting your studio? Was that kind of when the break, when things started really happening? Well, it, it there's a, there's in a long career, there's a series of breaks. Yeah. There's the break of I have some place to work was huge. Yeah. You know, and that's a, a break that affords me to be able to stay in this game to this day. So, like, that is a huge break, yeah. right? But the break of having your first hit is a completely different break of yeah. of having people want what you do, you know. The demand, and yeah. So, um and and with that being said, you have to do that ever so often just to let, to keep make sure that your phone keeps ringing. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like you yeah. can't rest on on what you did before or anything like that. So, when there's lulls, you're always nervous because you're only as good as your last record. Yeah, yeah. So when there's lulls in your career, and I, like I had, I've had one, two, and then a third one. But once you know that you're going to work and you're doing the work, and you know all it takes is one, you know, and and you have all the information of how you got there the last time. It's it's a much easier process. Yeah. So it was the first one JT Money? Was that the? Yeah, that the, was the first, the first one hit. that took the pressure off. Take the pressure off. What does that mean in like? I mean, it's terms? just 
I mean, there's validation. You know, this is a business that doesn't necessarily have any gatekeepers. So mm. if I said I'm something tomorrow, then I am. You know, there's no one going to come in and tell me that I'm not. So sometimes the validation comes from the awards, from the accolades. And I think that's maybe that's why we flash them so much yeah. uh, in ways. But getting your first number one says that you're legit. Yeah. You know, that. It says you're legit. So whether it's an American Music Award, whether it's a BET Award, whether it's a Grammy, whatever that is, those moments of validation tell every teacher that thought you were kind of crazy because you couldn't really stay focused that, no, I, I really was right about my plan. Yeah. So for me, like from the outside, it's one thing to have a hit, you know, 1999. But then, you know, when we get to 2007, 2008, into 2010, you had a series of hits, and it was. I think it was more than hits. It was you. You defined an era of sound. You know, there was a five-year stretch there where you were just on fire. It seems like. So, with, it, did that start with Rihanna? Um, uh, that actually started just with the collaboration of of Dream and I getting in the studio. That okay. was that was the beginning of. Um, two crazy forces coming together at one time and just using a lot of energy and a lot of educated guesses of um, that I had with success and failure mm-hmm. and he, he doing the same thing and then us finding a melody that was going to make the world sing for five years or however yeah, yeah. long it was. So, so when does Dream enter? Well, Dream was in and Dream was, Dream was originally signed by by my brother Laney, who was working here at the time. So I had a relationship with Dream, but it was more when Dream um, stopped kind of having his relationship here that he went and worked with Nivea uh, on a project that they did, and they shot some videos and kind of went at it renegade style. And and I got to hear him unobstructed and kind of uh, what he did on his own when he went in the studio. And I was really, really attracted to that sound and those records and the energy that I thought that they were bringing. And it just kind of led me to kind of going to him one day and going, hey, like, um, this track right here, next time you go in the studio, just, I don't know what that thing is that you do, but just try doing it over some chords like this. And Uh that's kind of how I felt it out for a while. And like, you know, just... um, because I was kind of locked in mentally on what I was what I was doing and he was around and he was really really good and had a lot of energy and then when we got in and one day um he myself and Coot Carell my cousin my other cousin uh came to the studio um I don't know why we just said you know we need some new vibes mm-hmm. let's come up to the studio early like for a couple of days just the three of us we closed the studio there was no one here and we just wrote and the first i think the very first song that we wrote was suffocate by jay holiday tell me what a man is to do cause i can't breathe when you talk to me i can't breathe when you touch me which ended up being you know a really big record for us i think it went to number two on the pop chart and mm-hmm. um did really well on urban but was really surprisingly 
strong on the pop chart. And then we wrote Umbrella. So we got here at like seven in the morning to write, and by nine thirty, we had written those two songs already. Oh, crazy! You those know, are the first two out of the gate. Those were the first two. Wow! And from that point, we just kind of looked at each other and was like, "Yeah," because this was our first time ever really, like getting in a room. And even though we kind of worked in this, um, the way the studio was set up, we kind of walked worked in this cross pollinating way of yeah. where all the rooms were connecting at that time and we just kind of looked at each other and was like hmm i don't know if we can let anybody come back in here for a while yeah yeah so then we closed the studio again okay and we just kept writing and yeah. we kept writing and kept writing making like classic records in 15 minutes yeah. you know what i mean like yeah. so this is this is a whole nother level of like creativity like that's just happening all at the same time yeah that's so amazing. That was a great, great time. Yeah. Uh, so, when did you get into AR work? A and R work. I've always been the A and R. Yeah. Okay. I just let other people put their name on it. <laughs> 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 I mean, no. I mean, if you're the producer, in a sense, I always feel like you are an A and R, and A and R is just something that I've always uh, looked kinda... at myself as being. You mm-hmm. know, um, I've been. Since the very beginning, if I've ever had a deal, you know, if you look on the back, it's always executive produced by me, mm-hmm. you know, which to me is really A&R. It's yeah. not really about the song. It's about the whole thing, you know. Yeah. And so, you know, I've I've always done it uh, and I was afforded the opportunity to go um, do it uh, for real with L.A. over at uh, Epic um, yeah. when he started Epic Records. And that was that was a cool experience as well. So, yeah. So. Uh, did Def Jam A and R for Def Jam come before Epic? I was never A and R for Def Jam. Oh, you weren't. Okay. No, I was a consultant. And, okay. And pretty much, you could say I was an A and R because if I have the whole Mariah Carey album, I got the whole Frank Ocean album, I got the whole Dream album. Yeah. It's like I had, and I'm, and I'm basically handling the biggest songs on, you know, Rihanna. I'm doing Justin Bieber. I'm handling your new stuff. Yeah. You know, we're doing what. I am the A and R. Yeah, I just don't want to come to the meetings. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Um, so when I was doing some research, um, I came across this interview in 2010 that I wanted to read you a little quote from. It was from the the Division of Georgia Tourism. It was like this really small website, um, but they asked you uh, any up and coming artists you're working with that we should keep our eyes out for, and you said, "quote." One of my favorite new talents is this guy, Lonnie Bro. He's really great with a style somewhere between Maxwell, Robin Thicke, and Kanye West. He's this fresh, young, 21-year-old hip-hop poet with an amazing singing voice, and he blends all these different styles seamlessly, which I thought was really interesting because this is pre-Nostalgia uh, Ultra. So I guess that's my segue into when was the first time you heard the name Lonnie Bro? Um, don't get me to lying because I lived in a haze back then. <laughs> um, but I know there's I, my brother Mark 
Stewart and Tab mm-hmm. brought me Lonnie Bro. Okay. And after that, like, the only thing that I remember, I was doing Mariah Carey's album, and I was doing a film with Christine Aguilera at the same time. Okay. Um, they brought me Lonnie, and I, I heard his music, and I was just like, my God, like, like I was like, this is something I've not heard before. Um, and I believe that they brought him to me for a writing session. Like, you need to write with this guy. Yeah. And I just, I met him. I was super busy and I was super like all over the place mentally. Mm-hmm. And I, the one thing that I could just get out, like in all the confusion was, I want you to be my artist. I love what you do. The only thing is I just never want to hear anyone ever try to sing your songs. Yeah. And that was my thought process on that. When I heard him sing, I would I felt like any time if you can imagine hearing Marvin a Marvin Gaye demo <laughs> and yeah. letting and hearing another artist sing it, that's what I thought Frank Ocean demos would sound like forever. Do you remember the songs that were on the demo or they kind of never seen the light of day? Uh, I remember them. I remember them quite well. There, yeah. there are some amazing songs that um, we just haven't I mean, heard. I mean, some of them he gave away. Okay, you know, and they sound like trash <laughs> compared to what they're supposed to sound like. You know, so yeah. So, a couple of things on that. Um, I guess this is the obvious question, but I'll ask it anyways. Uh, what about hearing him sing his own songs? made you realize that you wanted just him to sing his own songs and i guess this, the well, second part is like how did not how did everyone else not hear that because it seems like it'd be obvious to like someone like me or anyone that loves frank ocean but at that time why do you think that that didn't translate well i think most people are in such a hustle to try to get something that's quick and there's a lot of people that say a lot of words but there's very few people who sing from their soul mm-hmm. And when you watch people that sing from their soul, they always win. And But most people can't see that because they're always looking for what can help them next. Mm, yeah. at, the point, at that point, I didn't need the next thing that was going to help me next. I, yeah. I, like, I had Mariah Carey, Christine Aguilera, and yeah. the other thing. So yeah, I knew yeah. he was singing from a place of what I was watching them. And I was my radar was very high. Because I was just around it every day. Yeah. You know, like, you have different periods in your life, but when you're around Mariah Carey, when you're around Lionel Richie, when you're around Whitney Houston, when you're around, like, you know, Celine, like, what the company that I was keeping at that time, like, yeah. from Katie to Frank to Dream to, to Ye to B to Reed, like, I'm just feeling an ultimate feeling of what it takes to win because I'm just around it all the time. So when somebody comes in, when somebody walks in with it, the same people know it. It's like when somebody, they don't even hesitate. The biggest artists in the world are the first ones to let you in when they know you got it. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's why I'm trying to capitalize. Yeah. That's why if, even if you look back, like as soon as nostalgia ultra came out and Frank ocean came out two days later, he took a picture in the studio with Beyonce Nobody else takes pictures in the studio yeah, right. Beyonce, but she knew what it meant. Yeah. Because she's smart. She yeah. knew what it meant for the association at the time. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. No, that's great. Um, I'm curious if you had any other 
songwriters that you heard them perform their own work and felt the same way. Is there What's other, the question? Is there any other examples like Frank where you heard the songwriter perform his own music and then you're like, oh, why are you songwriting? Why aren't you? Is there any other artists that you've had that experience with? Yeah, Dream. Okay, yeah. I mean, it's it's connected to the soul. Like, he's yeah. all fucking encompassing, confusing, beautiful, and nasty yeah. all at the same time. Yeah. You know, he's like, Dream is a great fucking roller coaster of a fucking time. Artist, yeah. Yeah, like, he makes dope fucking records. You yeah. know what I'm saying? So, it's like, that's what I like. These guys make roller coasters, like emotional mm-hmm. roller coasters. And that's what I'm, that's like what I fuck with. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I was reading that you're pretty close with, um, I guess we'll call him Lonnie, um, after signing, you signed him to Def Jam. Yeah. So what is that? Were you kind of showing him the ropes or like, what does that mean? Were you just guys just hit it off as good friends or was there a little bit of mentorship going on too? I don't know. I just knew that, you know, from my perspective, right, I just vibe with people and I've worked with a lot of people, um, but I don't vibe with everybody I work with. There mm. was just something that about him that I vibed with that I thought when I'm doing something cool, I want him to see it. Yeah, I don't do that with everybody I work with, but if I'm doing something that I think somebody could appreciate, like I'm like, oh, let me show you this. Yeah, because this might like I took him to the Sade concert. He never seen Sade before. Mm. Yeah, like, he like fucking bugged out. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like for everybody else, it's like I don't need to, you know, like. You know, I took him to see, like, dope designers, and I went him to show him my man Thomas Shoes like, art studio, like, where he could just be like, oh, okay, this is this is where it's at. Yeah, you know what yeah. I'm saying? So it's like he's – I knew that he had the capacity for the art form in its fullest. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Most people just want to sing the songs. Yeah. So you – Sounds like it, you just knew that right away, first time you heard him. Yeah, he's. Just, I, I'm really attracted to people with intellect, and his intellect through conversation. You know, the reason that the reason that you talk that we talk about him is just because it requires thought, just to even think what he's thinking. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, interesting. So nostalgia ultra. Um, you produced Novocaine. Um, was that the first session that you had with him as a producer and artist? I think so. Yeah. Is yeah. there anything that stood out from those sessions where you that were different from others that you've had, or? Um, yeah, I mean, our our session was super meticulous. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Novocaine. I don't know how long we worked on it, but it was a long time. Okay. He was in this room right here. I was in the room across the way. Um, he would write. I would produce. I would send it to him. He would write. I would produce. Mm. I would send it to him. He would write. I would produce. And we just kept challenging. That's why this song just keeps changing and evolving because we were kind of doing it like in real time. And that was one of the few times that I got him down here okay. um, in Atlanta. Fuck me long, fuck me numb Love me now when I'm gone Love me none, love me none Love me none Looking back at Nostalgia Ultra um, I'm kind of curious to see Like, you know, some good amount of time Has been by um, Since the release of that Where do you see that 
um, what does that that project represent to you to to Frank Ocean's legacy? I mean, that project is a classic. That is a, that is. If I have two classics, which I think I do, maybe maybe three, but those two projects, the way that they're put together, um, that Nostalgia Ultra and Love Hate, um, I think it's a classic. And I think um, if it could have been if it could have been released properly, I'm pretty sure that wins the Grammy for Album of the Year that year. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that happens. Yeah. But it wasn't because of the obstacles we face with the yeah. the label and the partner. Yeah, and you know, so that was that was what that whole issue was. But if that record was a commercial release with proper clearance, I'm pretty sure you're looking at album of the year. Yeah, I believe it. What was the in, what What do you remember about the industry's reaction to Nostalgia Ultra? Because um, he was relatively unknown at that time. I mean, it, it they were like, giddy. Yeah, they were giddy. The whole in- industry was giddy. The calls that I was getting from the people that were calling, every artist that I was working with, when I would come out from working on a session with Frank Ocean, or if he was in the studio, would be sitting in the lounge. Mm. Every female artist. <laughs> it was yeah. it was crazy. I was people were just calling me up. I'm like, I are you working on the album? Hey, no, I was just wanted to come by tonight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, 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 they just wanted to be around. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the things, his conversation on that first record uh, struck a chord with a lot of different people mm-hmm. a lot of di- from a lot of different walks of life. Like, it's one of the most lyrical albums on bodies of work of all time. Yeah. And it, it probably to a lot of people just felt like it came out of nowhere. I mean, he just released it on his Tumblr page, no press. And it just kind of had this organic impact that, I mean, really started his legacy. Um, I'm curious, you know, his situation with Def Jam, obviously, it's not a secret, was a little tumultuous. I'm curious, you know, Nostalgia Ultra was like, a, I feel like it forced a lot of people's hands. And I think that was probably calculated on his part. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe partially just he was an artist and he just wanted to get something out. But it really did force Def Jam's hand um, from an outsider's view. I can't really imagine a lot of artists in his situation, you know, being signed and then being put on the shelf, essentially, doing a similar thing. Do you think there's many artists that would have been able to do what he did and got him basically forced his, forced his way out of a bad situation with art, essentially? Um, I don't know. I mean, listen... The the truth of the matter is no one really knows all the answers to this. We just know the result. Yeah. And at the end of the day, um, Def Jam, I think, made a huge mistake. And that huge mistake, um, I think it's great for Frank um, as an artist that um, he was able to, by the, I think by the time of 29 years old, he owned his own masters. Yeah. Um, he has a lot of great things going for him. But I think it's a huge mistake for Def Jam to let a talent like that walk out of the door because you don't have someone that can walk in the door and and make him feel differently. Yeah. And that and that's a problem. You know, at the end of the day, it's like Def Jam, yeah, you made a mistake. But people make mistakes all the time. Yeah. You can fix mistakes with money. Yeah. They couldn't <laughs> fix mistakes with the people. Yeah. 
you know, and that was, you know, they they had some some regimes. It was it was regime changes too. So it yeah. wasn't it wasn't even like it wasn't even like he was dealing with how it started. Like they weren't there no more. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Somebody should have been able. Like you had two regimes and nobody could like reach. Like you got a superstar. Yeah. And you and you got Kanye West. Like y'all don't know the y'all can't figure out the Frank Ocean language, <laughs> and you got Kanye West. Come on, <laughs> yeah, um, it's an easier language. So I, I read somewhere that you you saw his situation with Def Jam as a changing of a guard, changing of the guard in the music industry. Mm-hmm. What did you mean by that? I mean, like what you see now, they can barely get their hands on a star, yeah, a real one. You know, because everybody's doing zero to sixty. Mm. So. Once you decide to sign up for six uh, sixty to one hundred, you know, the odds change. You're gonna pay. You're gonna pay for that. Yeah. You know, and that's why they're writing big, huge checks out here trying to close deals on things that they can't create themselves because the talent level is down. Got it. Um. So I wanted to move on to um, Blonde and Endless. Um. I guess, I guess since we're on the topic, um. So you kind of alluded to that, Frank was able to negotiate his, himself out of the contract with Def Jam with the release of Endless, and then he puts out Blonde yeah. um, independently. Mm-hmm. I'm just kind of curious of what your thoughts on on that whole... I thought, I mean, at the end of the day, like, like, I think it's a whole bunch of misplays going on. Like, it's a bunch of misplays. Def Jam is misplaying. Uh, Frank is smart and a dick, like, at the same time. So it's like... uh he's he played them you know mm-hmm. he really really played them and at the end of the day like we'll never really know what the full potential of it is because yeah. he was at the right label they just couldn't do the right thing you know like he still needs major promotion yeah. like like you know he, for him to reach the potential that he has as an artist which i think is unlimited and still not tapped into I think he still needs that big fucking nasty machine when it works. Like, and you know, Apple is Apple, but they can't do that. Yeah. They can't make you Bruno Mars. They can't. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, and he's he's that guy. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, he deserves that. You think he wants that? Mm, I don't know. Yeah, he might be scared. He um, might be scared. Did you have any uh, early listens to Endless and Blonde, or did you hear it when it came out? I heard a little bit of both. Um, mm-hmm. I heard a little bit of both. I had to think about that. Um, yeah, after Frank and I and everybody settled, like interesting, interestingly enough, we never had really been talking through it all. So after the contract was finished, the next day he called me like, yo, you want to work? <laughs> so uh, we go out there and uh, we work on a couple of records, whatever. Okay. Um, Nothing of note to really speak on. Is this on. New York or? This is L.A. L.A., okay. And, um, no, he plays me um, Endless, and then he plays me, like, you know, all the artwork and, yeah. you know, all the ideas that he had going on with it and shit. And I was like, yeah, this shit's dope. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, Yeah, as a producer, I guess I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the, the album's production, and especially going from Channel Orange to something like Blonde and Endless. Um, what were your thoughts on the, the, the production? Um, my thought on it really is at the end of the day, I think 
Frank needs to let the producers produce in some of these cases. A lot of these records, I heard the roughs, and then I hear what Frank does. And it's like, it's super dope, but there's something, like I've heard some different versions of these records, and it's like, some of the shit is like gets convoluted because Frank is a classic overthinker. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So like sometimes less is more and some of the time some of the shit that comes out of his mouth is so so dope. It doesn't even really need to be like doesn't need to be done again, but he's like so meticulous. Yeah. So like he's so meticulous. Like like I heard there's fifty versions of White Ferrari. Yeah. Like, <laughs> That's crazy. Like, I mean he's notorious. Yeah. Like you know, in, in L.A., like, engineers get the Frank Ocean call. They're like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, they want it, but it's like, you know, you might record one line a thousand times. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've heard I've heard some stories like that. Like, and you're just like, bro, I don't feel like doing that. That number three was it. Like, <laughs> it was right there. <laughs> what do you think that is, just him searching for perfection? Um... I think it's not knowing who's on the other end of the of the connection. I think that's where producing really that's what producing is really brought where when you have that trust with that uh, other person yeah. and I don't know maybe maybe it's just an overall insecurity of uh like taking the the takes and things like that or you know I don't know. Yeah. You have any favorite favorite tracks on on Blonde or Endless? Mm. No. Yeah. No, I like them both. Yeah. Um, my favorite record that he's done is the one with Calvin Harris. Oh, that's a great. Yeah, yeah. I love that one. That's Slide. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's the that's the one that sticks out to me. Like I think, you know, I'm I'm call me crazy. I'm old school. Yeah. I need the records, man. I need the records, man. I need the ones that play on the radio. Yeah. You know, like and I know that sound. I know that shit sounds like old and all that, but telling you it's not the best records truly play on the radio and when your shit ain't on the radio you don't have one mm. so i want to switch gears a little bit um and talk about some of the stuff you're doing today um so i thought kind of going through your history and and kind of studying that it was interesting to me there's kind of this through line of selflessness as a songwriter as a producer as an a and r you're kind of a lot of your job is lifting up other people. Um, and I saw that kind of continue on in what you're doing on social media um, with, you know, doing fan responses with the Two True Tuesdays and then now propping up producers with your playlists on Spotify. The architects. The architects, yeah. yeah. Um, was that kind of that helping of others something that was just natural to you, that was always something that you, you were drawn to? Um, I think... There's a couple things. A, like I said, I'm really big into sports. Mm -hmm. I play sports my whole life. So I understand the concept of having a good game yourself individually and losing because someone couldn't make the last play of the game, right? Mm -hmm. And from that, those lessons that I learned is that it's just, it's not important to be, it's more important about the greater good, you know, than the, than just me. So when I don't, when I do things, I don't think about me. I think about us. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And I'm in there, yeah. and, and it's and it's got a healthy portion. But at the same time, I don't want to walk in the door and, you know, um, not take everybody with me that I think is deserving. Yeah. 
one of the craziest stories that anybody ever told me was that when they walk into a room, they only think about themselves. That shit was scary to me. Yeah. So, like, I never want to be that guy. Yeah. So, yeah, let's talk about uh, Tricky Stewart's Presents The Architects. Yes. Yeah, yeah. What's that, what's that about? Hey, listen, I my brother told me we we talk a lot about music and, you know, we just started seeing all the documentaries and things come out. And he, he just kept saying to me, like, you know, if we don't tell our story, who's going to tell it? Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, and, and who tells these stories if, if someone doesn't deem your story to be told? And yeah. I was like, man, so crazy because, you know, in all of our discographies, no matter what we do, no matter how many records and how many years or countless hours that we dedicate to this craft, someone is going to take the time to write you a bio that's going to simplify you into three songs. Yeah. You know, and I just became uncomfortable with that factor. And I was like, you know what? You know, we always want to talk about who is not here and talk about how great they are after they're gone. But I was like, I want to talk about how great people are, why they can hear it. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I started really just thinking about my influences and people who influenced me to make music. And I wanted to make playlists for them. And um, this whole series has really started out as a reflection of my personal influences it doesn't have an order it doesn't have a pecking order to i think this person is better than this it just has to do with who has had influence on my career and then once i get done with the influence of my career i'm going to just go to the people that i I think are amazing so with that being said you know i'm getting close to the end of the people with my um Influence, with with yeah. my influence, you know, I'm going to do a feature on, I'm going to, like, I wanted to wait to really honor the Virginia sound uh, with Timberland and Pharrell and mm-hmm. Missy and and uh, Chad. And I wanted to save, like, a very, very special place for Jermaine Dupree, Dallas Austin, Organized Noise, and some of the hit makers that have come from Atlanta, like the early hit makers, where people were really, truly doing pop, R&B, music, you know, like... Yeah things that were taking over the world. So um, after that, the the list that I have compiled is like goes on and yeah. on and on and on. And then it's never going to end yeah. because there's so many great producers that have dedicated their life to this craft, you know, and I'm eight weeks in getting amazing feedback from people. People are already checking in. Teddy's called me, uh, hit me up. Ronnie Jergens has hit me, Raphael Sadiq. So Quincy actually reached out through, nice. um, through email so it's like they appreciate it yeah yeah like people like being honored and it's yeah. something that at the end of the day you're looking for things that feel good for the spirit people like to work out i like to work out and give like sing other people's praises so yeah yeah it's a great plot i think it's a really great way to use today's you know spotify platform and um the accessibility of music in a really great and positive way um and instantaneous so um yeah, I think that's really cool, and I'll definitely toss some links um, in the dissect stuff to the architects. Um, Thank you. That would be amazing. Yeah, and then um, I'm just curious what you're up to these days, just generally speaking. Well, listen, here I'll tell you exactly what I'm up to. I came back to Atlanta because Atlanta is, right now, obviously we know that the trend and everybody says Atlanta's in a run, but the truth of the matter is Atlanta has never changed since we came here mm-hmm. in the early 90s, and it's a lot going on in this city, and there's not a record company in the city. And I'm like, well, if it doesn't get built, 
by someone else who, who's gonna build it yeah I'm, and i realized that i was the age that you that i should build it yeah so i'm here uh working on an independent record company content company so i'm just putting a light on what is going on here at this address um for a long long time that has led to a lot of parties in the world globally yeah dancing drinking having a good time to really dope black music that's not dirty that's not super like like not super trendy but it's just it's right there it's what it's what these producers that i'm uh honoring it's what they're made of yeah like so i'm not really focusing right now on like what the labels did i'm focusing on the focusing on the men that build them yeah you know what i'm saying so in the in the people that build these these labels have to do with like that perspective that that a perspective of the things that you're dissecting you know mm-hmm. like the words like jimmy Iveen told me that if you drop something important out of a fucking window it's gonna happen yeah like if it's that good it's gonna happen yeah you know what i'm Nostalgia saying so, ultra yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah so and that's and that's what what my experience has been yeah. you know i have no reason to doubt that when i've done my best work this industry the f- people around the world the fans around the world the artists around the world have rewarded me completely but when i'm like trying to talk myself into something that's not as good as i think the results are the same you know like you can't talk yourself out of greatness mm. you know that shit you got to feel that shit man it's yeah. got to be it's got to come from the soul, and that's where rap is really winning. When I was talking about that shit with Frank Ocean about it, the singing come from the soul. Well, this rap shit is coming from their soul. Yeah, that's how they feel. Yeah, like it or not. Yeah, that they're not prepared to separate with that feeling. Yeah, people you know what I'm attract- saying. People are attracted to that feeling too. Yeah, so Dude. when you can when you can deliver that, I'm just not a hip hop guy like that. Yeah, but trust me, I I'm about to go back into my JT money bag because that's where I was back then when I was yeah. like, oh, I'm getting a little nervous because it had been a minute since I had struck something. You know yeah. what I'm saying? And I was like, well, fuck it. And then I made those two rap records, that and four, five, six, and had two number ones in a row. Yeah, yeah. Cool, man. Um, so I wanted to end today with the, the that same question that you were asked in 2010. Um, any up and coming artists um, that we should keep our ears to? <laughs> well, now that you mentioned no it, pressure. No, no um, <laughs> listen. Um, the truth of the matter is, I'll be honest. I started this journey of wanting to build this independent record company and content company with just one artist in mind, and that artist was is the uh, Janine the Machine, and Janine the Machine is the artist that I have uh, right now. Right now, I have out an EP out called uh, High Places. It's um. I think she's an amazing talent. I think you're going to see some crazy, crazy shit from her. And uh, and she's an intellectual, like, badass woman. And it's amazing. And I wanted one artist. And I ended up with three. All right. Because they were that good. Yeah. And sometimes you just can't. I don't want to be Def Jam. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I just don't want to yeah, be yeah. Def Jam. Like, what happened with Frank, I, that can't be me. Yeah. Like, I can't have that be my story. So I just realized that I got to get up earlier and I got to go, go to sleep later, if at all. But I had to sign Saucedo, mm. which is formerly known The Daniel, but he changed his name, got a new swag, got a whole new project coming out. He's dropping this record called Cabeza, which is 
like some Spanglish trap meets world. I don't even know. Mm. But let's just say it's going to. We're going to challenge for a classic on the first one. All right. All right. So uh, I'm really looking forward to that. And then through this damn social media and being active, um, Michaela came to me. Mm. Um, this girl, I started following her on on um, Instagram and just couldn't take my eyes off of her. And her voice just was just, it's just, it was just moving me through the internet. And I just, you know, I called her and I said, listen, when your spring break comes up, because she's in college, she's mm. a brainiac too, you know. So I said, when your spring break comes up, you come see me. And I called her mom. I said, you come see me. Let's let's get in the studio. We did four. We did five records, and I promise you, four of them are hits. Wow. Four wow. of them are hits, and they dope as shit. And I just told them, I was like, I don't even want to touch these records again until I can get you back full time. I played it from one person, my boy Zeke. He went crazy for it. Zeke is all over the shit, and he's the only person that I played this shit for. All right, all right. So that's where we at. Cool, man. Last question. Where's the name Tricky come from? Hey. <laughs> now, listen, we'll give you the um the version that okay. is out there, the right? PC, the PC yeah. version? <laughs> <laughs> we'll give you the version that's out there. Um, I got the name Tricky from my mother. Uh, by the way, that I played football, I was really hard to tackle. Oh, okay. I can see that. Yeah. All right, man. But that's not it. <laughs> can we get the ex- what's this what's the exclusive yeah. scoop no not no, getting it all right it goes back too far and yeah mm-mm. yeah all good man well i appreciate right. it uh talking to you today absolutely great talking to you yeah, yeah thank you for the opportunity yeah appreciate it man tricky stewart presents the architects yeah we'll drop it see you man appreciate yeah, it man. absolutely yeah. that was fun i love talking about all this shit yeah Cause it takes you back. Yeah, yeah. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tricky Stewart. I'd like to thank Mr. Stewart for taking the time to talk to me and the entire Red Zone team in Atlanta for being so hospitable. Be sure to follow at Tricky Stewart on Instagram and check out his Spotify playlist series, Tricky Stewart Presents The Architects. You can find that by searching Tricky Stewart and Spotify. I also have links on my social media. Special thanks to PK and Michelle at Spotify for helping put this interview together. Okay, thanks everyone. I'll talk to you next week.